From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. I think it, there needs to be a lot of discussion and consideration of like our digital nudges when somebody's got this app and you're getting a notification constantly to say, oh, you could trade like this or you could trade like that or you could follow this person trading or you could follow that person trading. When do those notifications become or are they already recommendations? And if they are recommendations, does RegBI kick in and does the app need to make sure it's functioning in the customer's best interest? That was Melanie Lubin. She's a state of Maryland Securities Commissioner, and she's also president of NASA, not the space agency, but the North American Securities Administrators Association, whose members are state securities regulators. She joins this episode to tell us about what state regulators do, how they're different from federal regulators, like the SEC, and the role of NASA in coordinating their actions when dealing with issues of fraud and misconduct, both in local communities and at the national level. And spoiler, while state regulators are often aligned with federal regulators, sometimes they have different views, and NASA, just like you and me, writes comment letters to the SEC advocating for change, for example, on issues like digital engagement practices. My co-host today is McCombs Business School student, Noah Trapolino. Melanie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Noah, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Uh, so, Melanie, you are the Maryland Securities Commissioner, which, if I believe our research is correct, is a division of the Office of the Attorney General, and you are the current president of NASA, not the Space Agency, but the North American Securities Administrators Association, and we have a lot of questions for you. We want to know about state securities regulations and what state securities regulators do and why NASA exists. Most investors have heard about the SEC. Um, they know that securities markets are overseen by federal regulators, but I don't think they know much about regulation at the state level. And so I'm hoping we can start there. And can you just begin explaining to us what state securities regulators do and how it differs from federal regulation? So I like to explain to people that the state securities regulators are the local cops on the beat. So we have a lot of overlapping jurisdiction with what the Securities and Exchange Commission does, but we are the people where if somebody has a problem with their brokerage firm, their investment advisor, a securities deal that they've had, they've been defrauded in an investment scheme, where, you know, we're the people they call. So our jurisdiction with the SEC is overlapping in certain spaces. We have overlapping jurisdiction in the broker-dealer space, you know, more commonly known as brokerage firms. We have bifurcated jurisdiction in the investment advisor area. Investment advisors of a certain size are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Anyone smaller than those advisors are regulated at the state level. And we also have overlapping jurisdiction in the securities issuance space for you know, public offerings or private offerings of securities. And there are certain ones that are regulated at the SEC, but everything at the state level has to be registered with us, exempt from registration or subject to preemption by federal law. We also have enforcement authority, as well as the regulatory authority we have in the investment advisor, broker-dealer, and security space. And we enforce the state securities laws, which are anti-fraud laws that are very similar to the federal securities anti-fraud laws and laws to protect elderly or, you know, other investors with diminished capacity as well, as well as just general 
authority over investor protection type statutes. Something we were wondering is whether all missions are the same across the states and how does NASA deal with transparency versus versus merit approaches to regulation? So one of the reasons that NASA exists, it's the North American Securities Administrators Association, and it's the association of all the securities, state securities administrators in the United States, the, the securities administrators in, in the Canadian provinces, as well as Mexico. But in the U.S., we exist because we all coordinate what we do. So there's a statute that's called the Uniform Securities Act. There are several different versions of it, 1956, 1985, I think it was, and the early 2000s, and the states have versions of it. So those statutes keep us consistent with what our rules are state to state. So it governs licensing, it governs, you know, some states it's called licensing, some states it's called registration of the securities professionals, both on the, for the firms, for the brokerage firm, for the investment advisory firms, and for the representatives who work for those firms. So what's commonly known as stockbrokers under the statute, they're usually called broker dealer agents and under, um, and investment advisor representatives, which are, you know, the, the individuals who work for an investment advisor. So those are typically state licensees. We also have jurisdiction over the securities offerings, which we try and, you know, which are by and large consistent state to state. And as I said before, those have to be registered, exempt or preempted. There's this other concept when you come to licensing or registering a securities offering of disclosure versus merit regulation. And merit regulation will look at the underlying merits of a particular securities offering and the state you know, the states will have rules that relate to whether they think an offering is meritorious and is not necessarily a good investment, but an okay enough investment for someone. The other approach to regulating securities disclosure, you know, securities offerings is disclosure. So we make sure that all the good and bad information is there warts and all for an investor to make an informed decision. Both both merit and disclosure require full disclosure. It's just an approach of what kind of authority does the state have? Can the state say, we don't think this is a good deal, so we're going to not register it versus this might not be a good deal. All the information is in there for an investor to decide it's not a good deal and they can make that decision themselves. So what what is Maryland? Is it a merit regulator or a transparency regulator or both? Well, merit, we usually call it disclosure versus merit. Maryland okay. is a disclosure state, but there is this concept of if we think it's a really bad deal, like you disclose to death, so it's going to be very obvious to an investor that this probably is not a good idea. Now, there are also built in, even if you're a disclosure state, certain disqualifications from registering an offering. So they're called statutory disqualifications. And if there are like going concern letters because their financials aren't good, if there's fraud, there are bad actors involved in the offerings, other kinds of things that would prevent us from registering an offering. So you can't really disclose anything away. You still have to meet certain standards in order to become registered. So for a merit regulation state, is there a point at which they think it's just too much risk? And they therefore they say you can't proceed with this offering. Or what's an example of merit that would be different than well, it's a bad actor or something nefarious. So a really good example is like investment limitations. So they might register an offering, say it's in 
like a costly, complex, risky product, like a non-traded REIT or variable annuities or things like that, where built into the offering, there are conditions on how you can sell that product. So what's the percentage that investors are allowed to have in their portfolio? What are your restrictions on selling something that's very, very illiquid to someone who's elderly who might need their, you know, who might need their funds more quickly than somebody else? So it might be the nature of the offering versus, you know, and you want a commitment that says that there can only be a certain amount of this sold to certain types of investors and that that the seller needs to view the entirety of that investor's portfolio to, to determine whether or not they exceed that percentage in someone's portfolio of these like costly, complex, risky investments. So there are, so one of the things NASA does is that there are guidelines in the merit air, in the merit space where the states that are merit states try and coordinate those requirements. So there are guidelines that each state that's a merit state could follow. So let's talk about the line again. You mentioned it briefly before between state and federal regulation for example, regulating investment advisors. So where, where is that line with investment advisors? There's certain AUM, for example, that states uh, do it and then the federal regulators take over assets under management? Yeah, there is. There's a bifurcation based on assets under management for firms. I believe the number at the moment is $125 million, but there's like some, there is um, a cushion in there when a firm is moving from you know, if they're growing their assets, then they think they're going to become an SEC advisor versus a state advisor. So there, there are a bunch of detailed provisions about how somebody can move from one to the other. So it's bifurcated on that basis. If someone's a federal covered advisor, however, we still license the local investment advisor representatives for those firms. So if it's an investment advisor representative who has a place of business in our jurisdiction, even though if the firm itself is regulated under the auspices of the SEC, those individuals are still subject to state registration. So they become licensed at the state level and they're subject to the behavior requirements that, you know, go along with those licenses. Okay. So then it's really a dual registration regime. Then even if you are overseen by the SEC, there's still parts of the, the, the model where you're overseen by the state. Right. So what would happen is what the firm is doing is regulated at the SEC or the state level. So when the federal regulators go out or the state regulators go out and we do examinations of the firms because we have authority to do compliance examinations. We would be going, the states by and large would be going to the advisors within our jurisdiction and the SEC would be going to the advisors within, you know, the SEC's jurisdictions. So where, you know, so we would be the primary regulator of the state level investment advisors. The SEC is the primary regulator of the federal investment advisors. And we actually have overlapping jurisdiction when there's fraud. So either the states or the SEC could go after either kind of advisor for issues that involve you know, violating the anti-fraud provisions of our statutes. What's something that throughout your time in this arena, if you will, that you, an issue that you have seen that hasn't gone away, something that was there when you came in and something that you were still dealing with right now? I think one of the big things that really has not gone away is investor confusion over the obligations that the different professionals have with them. So the SEC, you know, recently promulgated regulation best interest to try and clarify 
the, you know, the statutory obligations or the regulatory obligations that a brokerage firm has to its client to act in its best interest, which is supposed to be an elevation of what had existed before, which was a suitability standard for how a, how a broker dealer was supposed to treat their clients. So there's confusion because brokerage firms and, you know, stockbrokers are allowed to use titles that sound like they're investment advisors and an investment advisor has a fiduciary duty. So when they use those titles, when an investor goes in, they're confused. Am I dealing with a brokerage firm that has a best interest standard? Am I dealing with an investment advisor that has a fiduciary standard? And what's the difference and how does that apply to me? So the SEC promulgated regulation best interest, which sounds like when a brokerage firm acts in a best interest, it sounds like the words that you use to describe fiduciary, but it's not necessarily the same. So one of the big projects that just came out in a big way to try and start to clear up this issue, which has been an evergreen issue since I started doing this 35 years ago, you know, is how does an investor know? So the SEC, you know, has changed the rules now where the brokerage firms have an obligation to act in the client's best interest, which is, you know, a higher obligation than a suitability standard. And the states just released a report based on examinations of brokerage firms to see, this was like the second phase of the report, to see, you know, what changes have come about from Reg BI. So we had done a study of the firms before the implementation of regulation best interest to set a baseline of what were the practices. And now we've just released a study that shows what has changed or where we're still seeing issues with the firms. And then there'll be another phase of this where we we go out to the firms and, you know, take a look at exactly what's going on on the ground. So what have you found and just what is the, the general consensus amongst state regulators on how well Reg BI is, is working out? So we, we think that there have been some improvements, but there's a lot of room left for improvements. And there are places where the SEC you know, we're recommending to the SEC that they give more guidance in the space. So, you know, firms are aware of what their obligations are, what they need to, to move to. So unfortunately, there have been a couple of things that we were disappointed to see. There's been increased participation in, you know, high cost, high risk products after Reg BI. There's been an increase in the number of firms that are selling the costly, complex, risky products, which, you know, usually are private securities, non-traded REITs variable annuities and leveraged and inverse ETFs, brokerage firms selling hedge funds, crypto structured products are also have also increased since we, you know, first asked them about this um, about a year and a half ago. You know, the SEC dual firms, the firms that are investment advisors and broker deal, you know, license on both fronts are more actively recommending the products to their, you know, to their retail customers. So, and those firms are more actively recommending them than, you know, the state dual firms or the standalone broker dealer firms, which is kind of interesting because there's the investment advisor component and they're going in there with much riskier products and, you know, recommending those more often. The firms haven't materially changed their due diligence policies and procedures to more carefully match their retail customers with products. So you asked about like the merit regulation of products and how of different products and how does that go in? And I had, you know, tried to clarify that a lot of times that has to do with when they retail those products, what happens? So 
a lot of the questions that have to be asked to the customer will help them determine, is this actually, you know, a, a product that's being sold in the customer best interest? So finding out, you know, how old is your client and are there restrictions on, on, on the age of someone who could buy a non-liquid product? Like, you know, you shouldn't be selling something like that necessarily to a 95 or 96 year old because they're going to need their money or they might need their money or it might just be not be a good product because why would you be selling a variable annuity to someone that age? Are there restrictions on how liquid, you know, on the liquidity or the age of someone or someone's situation in order to get into an illiquid product? Are there limitations on how sophisticated a customer has to be or requirements for how sophisticated a customer has to be in order to understand the products and the disclosure that they're getting? So, you know, there are, there are takeaways from this report that go to what our understanding is of what Reg BI was supposed to accomplish and, you know, has it accomplished those things. You know, another one is how are the firms complying with the care due diligence requirement that they consider reasonably available alternatives? And are they looking through those products before they make a recommendation about these, you know, costly, complex and risky products? You know, how effective is the disclosure? You know, the SEC try to get it down to a two-page or a four-page, depending on what kind of firm you are. And when you look at those disclosures, they will refer the customers to all the other disclosure that's existed so they could fit, figure out fees. And does something like that really accomplish the idea of a customer being able to understand what the fees are when they when they talk to their broker and are considering buying a product? So, so there's definitely room for improvement. <laughs> So let's unpack a little bit about what you said. And one thing I found particularly interesting is that it seems that based on your findings that some customers are being moved into more risky products when you go from a suitability standard to a best interest standard. And my understanding of best interest is it's best interest at the time the recommendation is made as opposed to a fiduciary where it's best interest, even when you're not talking to your client, and maybe that's an oversimplification, but Nevertheless, I mean, why would a higher requirement or higher standard then lead to the offering of more risky products? Is there any hypothesis there? It's a really good question. And I think that's a question for the firms. The states, as we've, you know, aggregated this information, have been very concerned that there's been an increase in how much it's sold. On the brokerage side, on the investment advisory side, there hasn't been because by and large, advisors won't sell those kinds of products. So it's a good question. And I think that's something we're going to look into when we go out into part 2B, to do phase 2B of the examination to see why this might be happening and see whether, you know, there's a lot of scaffolding around how this is going to happen, but the areas that are supposed to scaffold those things also don't seem to be providing those kinds of protections. So I think that's, that's really something that the regulators have to wrap their arms around. The SEC has to take a look at and say, well, maybe there needs to be more guardrails around these things than we've put into Reg BI and provide more information about, you know, what the firms can and can't do. But it is definitely troubling that there's more of this than less of this. How systematic is the finding? Is this like anecdotes that are troubling, but in low quantity, or is it systematically you're finding the shift towards higher products? Well, I can, we, we spoke to firms that are a more narrow group than that. You know, we spoke to retail or we surveyed retail broker dealer firms that 
um, are involved in selling, you know, selling to customers. So you, we took out of the mix, you know, only investment advisors. We took out of the mix firms that don't have, you know, retail components. And there is, there's an increase. There was an 11% increase in the percentage of broker dealers selling those products, you know, selling the costly complex risky products. There was a 10% increase in broker dealers selling hedge funds, cryptocurrency, and, you know, other structured products. They're the SEC dual firms, the ones that are investment advisors and broker dealers are more actively recommending the products to retail than the state dual counterparts. So those kinds of trends are concerning because Reg BI was designed to cut back on this behavior. So to see an increase in the amount of use of these things is concerning. And when we go out and do, you know, more examinations, we'll be able to see what else the firms might be doing. But this is based on information that the firms provided. So you would think that they would construe their own compliance procedures most favorably to themselves when they answer these questions. And those, you know, those are the kinds of outcomes we got from the data. So that so you you keep using the word we and I think you're referring to NASA and ostensibly yes. that's supposed to be the subject of our yes <laughs> I, I, yes so I am referring to we as NASA <laughs> and so let me let me go and and just start by noting that you are the 104th president of NASA that would imply it's a very old organization that's more presidents than I think we've had in the United States and I just want to start by asking you. Uh, are there any funny stories about the acronym and confusion with the space agency? Have anybody attribute you to a different job before? So I always say it's NASA with an extra A. We're not the space people, which, you know, since my son is an aerospace engineering major, is taken on special significance in, in my house. Because I always say, you know, he was all excited when he thought I, when he was little and he thought I was like involved in NASA. And I'm like, honey, it's not the space people. So we usually start almost every, you know, public presentation or I give and I'm like, this is, it's NASA with an extra A. We are not the space people. It's the North American Securities Administrators Association. How much exactly can one president get done in one year? And how do missions carry over between presidents? Is that an so organized thing? I have always viewed and I've been involved, I've been a state securities regulator for 35 years. I have been involved in NASA since, you know, very soon after I started. And we have a structure that's set up and we do strategic planning and we, we have within our structure five different sections, a section devoted to corporate finance, a section devoted to investment advisor work, a section devoted to broker dealer work, section devoted to investor education, and a section devoted to enforcement. And those sections have project groups within the sections, and there's a committee that governs that section. And that remains the, the personnel may change because, you know, state securities regulators, you know, change jobs or they decide they want to run for the board or other things. But the mission of those sections and the mission of the organization remains the same. It's investor protection. Obviously, our projects last years and years and years. I mean, I've been working on investment advisor stuff since you know, before um, NISMIA in the 90s and a lot of the, you know, like the RIGBI issues came up then, they came up with Dodd-Frank, they've continued to come up. So a lot of these issues are, you know, issues that are just continuing. So as an organization, through strategic planning, through the tasks, through things like that, our mission stays very similar. You know, we are the local cop on the beat. We are here to protect investors. We're here to facilitate capital formation in a way that protects investors. 
continues to protect investors. And that's what we always do. And it's the president's job, I, I really strongly believe, to take over the responsibility of what the organization's goals are and what our strategic plan is and to help you know, run the strategic plan and be the face of the organization for that year. But we very much continue the business of the organization year to year and don't change just because the president, you know, because the president changes. In your term for one year and then another president comes in, how do these rotations work? I'm Do you like just vote every year and you have no idea who's going to be the next president? Or is there a sequence of how the presidents usually come in and once they go, like, what do you do after being president? So after being president, you become past president on the board. The year before you're president, you are president-elect. I've been on the board. You're eligible to be on the NASA board when you are the securities administrator for your jurisdiction. And we have, I think, a three-year term limit on being on the, on the board of directors. We have section chairs that run the sections I've spoken to you about, and those also have term limits, but you can go go off for a year and come back on. There usually, there isn't any set succession. You do run for election, but I think we've done a pretty good job of getting people who are interested and would be good presidents into the job, you know, when they've been interested in doing that. And so there are presumably 50 states that are members. So you tell me if I got that wrong and they all participate in, you know, a certain extent and do you actively try to rotate across all the members? And if now that Maryland's been the president, can they be president again before 50 years pass? Or how does that work? We don't rotate through. It's really how interested your jurisdiction is or or your administrator is in becoming involved, you know, taking a leadership role in NASA. But we do, you know, we have meetings with everyone. It's 52 jurisdictions in the United States because it includes the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Um, And then we have our Canadian members and our representative from Mexico. So there's 67 or 68 jurisdictions altogether. And we, a lot of this is like a lot of associations who is, you know, who steps up, who's interested, who's committed, who can figure out how can I do this, you know, volunteer job and my job at home being my state administrator at the same time. It's very much about how interested and how committed and how much time somebody has. But, you know, it is, we do really important work. So we, it's never been my experience where we couldn't find somebody who was interested in being president or serving on the board. And we have people who are very active and very committed and who, who tend to take different roles, you know, in the organization on their way up to, the, you know, getting on the board of becoming president and, you know, are very conscious about making sure we have representation across all the jurisdictions, especially when we set up our, you know, our section committees, our project groups, the chairs of the project groups and, you know, and other projects that we're running. And you mentioned there, what you said, 67 members or you're implying that there's a lot of international participation it is north american representation how much of it's international from canada and mexico i mean what is their role and i I didn't really appreciate that aspect of the organization so we i mean i think it's fair to say we are primarily on the regulatory and enforcement side focused on the u.s but there are a lot of cross-border issues there are issues we're all we're all interested in, like investor education and how certain things are regulated in Canada versus regulated in the United States. And, you know, can we learn something from each other? We always have a Canadian member on the NASA board. And we have lots of participation from the Canadian members throughout the sections and the project groups and tend to have liaisons to other 
groups where there might be interested. I mean, I could use as an example, we have a steering committee for um, the Central Registration Depository and the Investment Advisor Registration Depository. Those are big databases that track the licensing for all the stockbrokers and investment advisor representatives and their firms throughout the United States that on the the CRD side, NASA runs with FINRA, and on the IARD side, NASA works on with the SEC. And we have had over the years Canadian liaisons to that project group because they've also went through a project where they built a huge database to to track all of this and you know do a huge licensing database that's similar to CRD. So they've been involved in that. A lot of the enforcement concerns are similar. They don't stop at the, you know they don't stop at the border. There are a lot of Canadians. Another big project over the years is a lot of Canadians would winter in the United States. And how do you deal with those firms doing business in the United States when their customers are in Florida or someplace else warm in the U.S. during the winter? So there are a lot of cross-border issues. And particularly in the investment advisor space, we have, you know, our, our Canadian members are really active in that space with us. And we, you know, our investor education stuff becomes international. There are other international organizations that the states participate in where investor education is really important because scams are scams. They happen all over the place. Wanting to educate an investor about how they can protect themselves and what they should look out for is very important. And that, you know, that doesn't really matter what border, you know, are you north or south of a border when you're concerned about those kinds of issues. Yes, fraud has no jurisdiction or in terms of where it goes. Right, and often happens offshore. So having relationships with other places is really important in order to be able to get information for enforcement cases. And so for our listeners, CRD is referring to a database for registered broker-dealers, and IARD is a database for registered investment advisors. And the public has access to those databases, too. They can go and look up broker-dealers and uh, investment advisors and now, do you think investors know they have access to that information? Well, I think we we try and let them know. Um, the firms provide information on some of their statements about this is how to look me up on broker check. Um, that's the public component of CRD where somebody could take a look at a broker. There's IAPD, which is the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure System. So that's a public part of IARD. So we really do try and educate investors that they can look up their reps and they can look up the firms and they can get in touch with the states and we can give them, you know, information that they may not see on the system or if we have any information about those particular reps. So we do a lot of investor outreach trying to inform investors that they really should get in touch with us and we can do a lot of gatekeeping. So I think a lot of the, you know, we tell investors, especially if it's a person that they can't find in any of these systems to give us a call before find out what we, you know, what we might know about an, indiv- an individual who's trying to sell them products, because it's very rare that somebody who's trying to sell them products shouldn't be licensed in the capacity on the brokerage side or the investment advisory side. So we really try and get investors to call us and we can do a lot of gatekeeping and say, well, look, that person's not registered, the product's not registered. It sounds like it might be this kind of issue. You know, it could be a scam. It could be you know, something really risky that might not be regulated, like we get that a lot in the crypto space. Uh, and then we can talk to investors one-on-one, like I had said before, with a local cop on the beat, you can call me at my office and I'd be happy to talk to, you know, talk to investors about what they're contemplating doing. And 
try to, I can't give them individualized investment advice, but I can tell them a lot about scams. I can send them information about investor education. And I could say, take a look at this because what you're describing to me sounds like it could be one of these frauds, or you're looking at something that's really risky. You may want to think about the other circumstances, you know, your financial circumstances otherwise, and, you know, tell them things like, you know, investigate before you invest. Tell them things like the return of your principal is as important as the return on your principal. And I know they're very soundbitey things to say, but they're the kinds of things that we want investors to latch on to because, you know, we all know how many phone calls you get at home. If you still have a landline, get on your phone, if you get on your cell phone from all kinds of scams. And a lot of those scams fall within the security space or even outside of the security space, but they're investment scams and we want to get investors educated. So, you know, they could be their first line of of defense and trying to protect themselves. So I really appreciate that about my mobile phone provider is now they show scam (laughs) when somebody calls me, I don't know the number, but I agree that's pervasive. And I guess uh, what's nice, what you pointed out is that state regulators have the ability to work more closely with investors, whereas it's unusual for an investor to call the SEC and have some staff there say, oh, yeah, you shouldn't invest in this product or be careful about this. So that's uh, something that a state regulator can do. And one question following up on that and what else a state regulator can do under the umbrella of NASA, uh, can you explain to us like how NASA actually helps states coordinate? Presumably, that's what NASA does. So like, what is a typical role of NASA, the organization, in terms of helping states like solve problems? Do you have an example? Or? Yeah. So one of the things we coordinate on are model acts. So if there need to be amended amendments to the Uniform Securities Act, you know, we will work together and come, you know, come up with a model amendment and then everybody can take it home, so to speak, go to their legislature, do whatever they need to do to get something about adopted. We've had a model act that's to protect vulnerable adults from financial exploitation. And that's a statute that allows financial professionals to report to the state if they think that they have a customer who's being financially exploited, you know, somebody who's a vulnerable adult or um, someone who's elderly, and they can call the state and they can call Adult Protective Services, and the state will coordinate with Adult Protective Services, coordinate with the firm, and you know, the firm is allowed to hold the, they have to execute the transaction, but they're allowed to hold the disbursement of the cash. So I could tell you Maryland gets calls like this all the time. We we have the statute, our legislature adopted the statute, and it's been adopted in 32 other states so far. And what it allows us to do is get in there before the money disappears and try and prevent the money from going to who knows where. So you see romance scams, you see crypto scams, you see all kinds of other scams where somebody who's a vulnerable adult might be, you know, losing money to someone who's, you know, got a whole boiler room set up to scam them, or it could even be somebody who is, you know, a caretaker that they think they can trust, but they shouldn't necessarily be trusting that person. So a bank or a brokerage firm would see like cash coming out of an account where nobody ever took cash out of the account, things being liquidated. So they can let us know and we can look into that and try and stop the the fraud before, you know, they actually get their hands on them. So we have that NASA model act. We coordinate and other model statutes, we coordinate in our approach to Congress on things that we would have on our legislative agenda. So there, you know, there's something we're working on now that involves 
a grant to states that have adopted earlier provisions that were designed to protect the elderly and vulnerable adults from fraud, where there was a grant program set up, but the grant program was never really funded. So we're working with Congress because there's an interest now in getting some some funding into that grant program that could enable the states to get grants to to work on protecting vulnerable adults and the elderly. There are we we work together on investor education areas. We just released something called a trusted contact document that is something that the firms you know, the investment advisory and the brokerage firms are encouraged to ask their customers for a trusted contact. So if the firm can't reach the customer or think something unusual is going on with an account or think that, you know, somebody's taking money out where they might not be able to take money out or might notice that something seems a little bit off with the customer because there's been studies done that show that one of the first things that starts to become troublesome for someone who's elderly and moving into having a diminished capacity is numbers and money. So when something like that happens and somebody talks to their broker frequently or their investment advisor frequently, and you you have a client who was always very sharp and all of a sudden they might not be so sharp. There's a trusted contact where if they're, you know, the financial professional is concerned, they can reach out to that person and that person doesn't get power of attorney, doesn't get anything else. It's just someone else to reach out to to say, I think there's an issue here. So, you know, and or if they might not be able to even find, you know, can't find the customer, they're not answering calls, things like that. So it really provides an additional layer of security. And that's something we're encouraging all the states and, and uh, provinces in Mexico to And so that's get out. done by state statute, creating this particular role? No, a trusted contact is actually something that the firm's voluntarily are are collecting from their customers. So this we're just putting so you're in encouraging a, the firms to do something of this. We're encouraging nature. the firms, but we're also encouraging the customers because sometimes the customers are worried about, well, what does that mean? What can that person do? Because people, you know, we, we go out and train people and in, you know, most people inherently are very careful about what happens with their money. So they want to make sure that a trusted contact isn't somebody who's got power of attorney over everything. It's just someone who's a trusted contact who could be there for an additional layer of security, really for seniors you know, to help the firm keep the accounts safe. I had started working on a project similar to this years ago, and we spoke to a lot of of investment advisors who wouldn't take a client on unless they were willing to provide a trusted contact because they wanted to know what they were going to, you know, they anticipated what could happen, unfortunately, to a lot of their customers as they age. And they wanted to make sure they had some way of getting in touch with someone in the family or somebody else who was a trusted contact to say, this is a problem with this customer. I think, you know, with this client, I think you should take a look at it. So this is a private market solution that good firms follow that state regulators are trying to help expand or promote or uh, make more widely available. Is that? I think that's a great way to sum it. I think it's a great way to sum it up. So you you were asking about other things that we do. So I had mentioned earlier, like we have guidelines that are coordinated in the merit space. We have guidelines that, you know, for other kinds of disclosure, we coordinate how do we review filings. We have a coordinated review program for certain kinds of securities filings. You know, so we can talk about deficiencies that we may see in the disclosure and how do we want to you know, ask the firm to to clarify in this disclosure and get that coordinated through a point, you know, one state that runs point from the merit states and one state that run, runs point from the disclosure states, particularly for bigger deals that might not qualify for some exemption because all of the, you know, the large offerings are pretty much exempt or preempted from the states. But 
smaller offerings that may not be like that for some reason, but are trying to get licensed or registered in a number of jurisdictions, we help coordinate with that. We coordinate on model regulation. So, you know, if you're an investment advisor doing business in Maryland, Pennsylvania, DC, and Virginia, you're going to know that your regulatory requirements are similar. We coordinate on CRD and IARD. And all of that coordination is run through NASA project groups and committees. So when we, you know, develop new functionality for CRD or IARD, we develop it with the model provisions in mind and, you know, get that information and those changes out to the states for things that we need. A really big way that we coordinate things is through a new system that NASA set up over the past several years called EFD. It's the Electronic Filing Depository. And it allows all kinds of filers to make their filings through that system. And the filing gets disseminated to the state. The funds will come into the state because they pay the fees in through the system. It's fully operational already in the, um, in the Form D space. So if somebody needs to file a Form D because they're doing a Reg D 506 deal federally and they want to coordinate the, with the SEC exemption, they can file with that system. The fees and the forms are disseminated to the states and then the states can you know, do whatever the response is that's necessary for that. So we have that set up in the Form D space. It's set up in the UIT, the the Unit Investment Trust space. It's going to be expanded next year for the Form NF space for mutual fund filings. And we also have a system that we pivoted to really quickly after the pandemic started where, where firms and other filers can make their filings for almost anything through the system and it will get us the paperwork and it'll get us the funds. So all of us who had to shut down right away and, you know, there were states that couldn't go in at all. There wasn't a way to process the, the filings or, or process the checks coming in. You know, the, the firms can do it like that. And it's a, it's a one-stop filing space. So it affords a lot of efficiencies to the filers to be able to sit there and, you know, put in the filing and click, click, click on the states and know what fees they have to pay and just send them out to the states through that. We actually just opened it up for franchises because some of the states in the security space also regulate franchising. How does NASA and yourself work with federal regulators? Is it an advocacy position? Do you ever work with or along with I uh, think the, the answer is it's both. Like that? So in some circumstances, we're in an advocacy position, but we are fellow regulators. So we try and coordinate how regulation happens. So if the SEC is changing requirements in the corp fin space or the broker dealer space or, you know, the IA space, we work on coordinating, you know, what we're doing with what they do. So, you know, Reg BI is a good example. The, the, you know, the regulation goes into place, you know, we're responsible. These are our firms too. We're responsible for making sure they're in compliance. We do a report. We have discussions with the SEC. You know, they look at the takeaways and, you know, we talk to them about where there are issues where we think there's more guidance necessary. And hopefully over time, we'll, we'll see those kinds of things. We coordinate with FINRA because, again, there's dual jurisdiction between the SEC and FINRA and the states over broker-dealer firms. So we coordinate with them. And we, you know, we recognize that in order for the firms to be in compliance and by and large, the firms want to be in compliance, there needs to be some coordination. So we're not all saying this is how you approach a certain issue and have different approaches to things. So I remember when I was at the SEC, I met with NASA on multiple occasions and it was usually the president flanked with other board members or state representatives coming in to 
talk to the SEC on various issues. I'm wondering if you can characterize like what fraction of those issues are issues where you have disagreement about how something's being done or agreement on how things are being done. Like when you go in, what generally is, which generally is it? I think it depends on the issue. I think it depends on are we there to advocate for a particular thing that the SEC hasn't addressed yet? Or is it something where we're all trying to address an issue together? So it varies depending on um, how welcome a reception we get, depending on who, you know, maybe who the commissioners are or who's in charge or things like that. But by and large, we're all here to protect investors and facilitate capital formation. And we look at, you know, we look at that mission very similarly. But, you know, there are places where we have to advocate a lot before the SEC takes things up. I mean, Reg BI, you can take a look at our comment letters and things like that. And you can see where we thought that the SEC should go further. But now Reg BI is in place and we're all living with it. And, you know, we're, we released our report and we're talking to them and we're, you know, hopeful that they're going to come out with guidance to help some things and that we can work together moving forward in order to, you know, make sure investors are protected and the brokerage firms come into compliance. So it all really depends on the, it depends on the issue. It depends on the personnel. Yeah. You're very politic in your answer. <laughs> but, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're all here for the same reason. Yeah. And so, you know, a couple of changes, one, that following Dodd-Frank, the FC now has an investor advocate who is also a former state security regulator. Uh, how much has that improved your interaction and dialogue with the SEC? Was that a, is that a good position? I think it's a great thing for the SEC to have somebody in there advocating for investors because there are lots of people who are going to come in from the firms and from industry and say, you know, this is what we need. This is what's best. And there's a good, you know, Sometimes in, that aligns with investor protection, sometimes it doesn't. So it's good to have somebody on the inside who's really there for advocate, to advocate for investors. And, you know, Rick's done a great job doing that. And, you know, he's got, you know, representatives from different places and NASA has a representative on the advisory council to, you know, to help bring the state's positions forward on these things. And also, having recently joined the SEC on the chairman's staff, it's Barbara Roper, who was at the Consumer Federation of America for many years and was also a very strong uh, advocate for a fiduciary duty. I'm just wondering, with her joining the SEC, has it also been, or is it too early to know, uh, whether it's been a help to state securities regulators and interfacing with the SEC? I think Barb will do whatever she needs to do to make it an investor protection and investor advocacy position. So we look forward to seeing what comes out of her tenure there. Okay. And Noah, do you want to you wanna switch gears and take us to investor protection? Yeah, definitely. On digital engagement practices, the SEC recently issued a request for comment on digital engagement practices or DEPs in response to apps like Robinhood, uh, who some believe generate unnecessary or inappropriate trading by users. And we were wondering what is NASA's view on this? In your letter, you talk about the, their recommendations or you have recommendations. Why yeah, is there are some benefits to, to these apps and programs because it's going to bring, you know, trading platforms to people who might not necessarily have access to trading platforms. So I think that's important. On the other hand, it puts a device in your hand that can be a gambling de device, essentially, and also puts investors at, risks from, at risk for doing that. So I think 
there's a lot of investor education, but I think there's a lot of regulation that needs to, you know, that people need to consider how does this apply? Because in anything in like the crypto and digital space, and I, I don't, I know that they're two different things, but there, there's a lot of overlap. There are also already regulatory principles in place that I think those firms in that space need to consider when they're doing things. So I think it, there needs to be a lot of discussion and consideration of like our digital nudges when somebody's got this app and you're getting a notification constantly to say, oh, you could trade like this or you could trade like that or you could follow this person trading or you could follow that person trading. When do those notifications become or are they already recommendations? And if they are recommendations, does Reg BI kick in and does the app need to make sure it's functioning in the customer's best interest? So they're all just because something is digital or high tech does not mean that the rules as exist don't already apply. So I think people in that space need to make those considerations. I think it's the same issue when you look at crypto products. You know, is it an investment contract? You know, is an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits based on others' efforts? And you can decide that already. You know, you can look at, for example, the interest-bearing accounts where people might be making crypto interest and say, well, those are exempt on the bank side because they're banks and they're regulated as banks. But these crypto entities are not regulated as banks. So are they now or how do you know, we come into compliance with the securities laws because there isn't something to exempt them the way they are with established entities. So I think there's enough information out there for the firms to worry about those things and come into compliance. And there are some firms that are, there are other firms that are reluctant to, there are some firms that are waiting for guidance. There are some firms who are waiting to see what the SEC versus the CFTC says versus is Congress going to get involved. But all of those, you know, the, the regulatory principles and the law is there. So if you have somebody coming in to take a look at this, who understands the way the securities law works, they can look at the different pieces of this and decide, am I in the broker dealer universe? Am I in the investment advisory universe? What's the deal with the products? And how do I, you know, how do I look at all of these things and decide what I need to do to come into compliance, make sure that, you know, we're covered as an entity and not having people bring enforcement actions against us because we're out of compliance. And then, you know, what's my exposure to the customers? If all of a sudden, you know, there's a, there are issues like Robinhood had or anybody else might have that's across the board with the customer base. And then they're being sued by their customers because they didn't give disclosure or they didn't tell them things that had they been in compliance with the securities laws, they would have, you know, they would have done. So it is a new air, a newish area, a new area, depending on when you realize it existed. But the same guiding principles that exist already for people at, you know, acting in the investment space are, is already there. And I think those firms really need to take a serious look at those things and figure out, you know, which category they fall into and what their compliance obligations would be and what their obligations are to their customers. When we had Ira Hammerman or the general counsel of SIFMA come on in a prior episode and uh, we talked about digital engagement practices with him and I made the comment that on my phone, when a badge comes up and a little red dot shows, I just can't help but click on it. Obviously, a behavioral bias that gets us to do certain things. I think that's what you're referring to. And if you have that in an app, could that be considered a recommendation, getting an investor to do something they wouldn't otherwise do, but for that badge coming up? And then before I ask the question, I'm going to also note that 
our very first episode with Dan Gallagher, the chief legal officer of Robinhood. And he pointed out that this engagement is, incur- is occurring with investors who ordinarily would not be thinking about investing. These investors are learning before the consequences of making mistakes are higher when they're later on in life. And so that there's a benefit to getting these investors to come in and trade. And so given all that I just said, like how does that weigh in on these these gamification type ads that are promoting investors to trade? I think he did a nice job telling you a potential upside of gamification. I it sounds like he skirted the downside. When GameStop started, before it hit the press, you know, I already mentioned my son who's in college. He was in high school and he started asking me questions. And I'm like, why are you asking me these questions? Which I'm thrilled if he wants to know what I do for a living, but, and, you know, wants to know what's going to happen, you know, when he, you know, has money to invest. But I was like, why are you asking these questions? And he starts telling me what's going on. I'm like, well, this is what I think they're doing. And this is what's going on. So whether you need your typical high school kid who's going to have an app in their hand to be able to gamble with money they may or may not have. And unfortunately, there has been a tragic consequence for somebody who did not understand what they were, what was going on when they, you know, when they were trading through, you know, through an online app. I think the industry and I think regulators parents, investors need to be very aware of those issues because it may open, yes, and I started by saying this, it it expands this to people who might not necessarily have access to trading, but there's an upside to that and there's a downside to that. And just like every other investing, you mitigate against the downside. You try and educate investors. You have, you know, some guardrails around what can be done and what can't be done. And fundamentally, You make sure you're in compliance with the same kind of requirements. Anybody else who is offering securities or offering advice would have to be in compliance with if they were doing it through another platform. So that's how the laws don't change. The laws are applicable regardless of the platform. Because 25 years ago, you know, online brokerage was a big deal. But they understood that they had to be registered as broker dealers. The app is a broker dealer. The app might be an investment advisor, particularly because of the nudges and the notifications. How are they in compliance with that? How are they fulfilling the responsibilities that the firms that any broker dealer, any investment advisor has to their clients? And are they doing that versus wanting to be isolated and say, we're new, we're innovative, we shouldn't be regulated? That That's not, I, I don't think that's a good approach. I think the good approach is we're we're coming into this industry. We're a new platform. Let's see how we can get into compliance in a way that continues to you know protect investors and you know recognize you know our our compliance obligations under existing law. So, given the request for comment on digital engagement practices, do you think that existing laws are sufficient? This requires an interpretation by regulators, or do there need to be new rules written around these evolving practices? I think there's a little bit of all. I think there's enough stuff out there now that people can work on coming into compliance with if they want to. But I think we need to see how effective that is with things and how much the firms want to be proactive and say, well, maybe these nudges are, you know, recommendations. Maybe we do have advisory 
or Reg BI obligations here that we're going to come into compliance with. So it's, you know, like I said, it's not the first time I've seen a new platform come into play. Sometimes you need to convince the people who are, you know, innovating on these platforms that, you know, there's a regulatory structure that already exists that applies to them. So I think some of it's interpretation. I think some of it is, you know, from their point of view, it was probably biting the bullet, deciding they're going to come into compliance. And there probably will be some space where there needs to be maybe new law, maybe new regs, you know, maybe new guidance. It'll, you have to see where the gaps are once you see firms coming into compliance. So Melanie, you've been with us for almost an hour now. We really appreciate you donating your time and I'm going to send it to Noah to land our interview. Yeah. Thanks, Melanie. This has been a really enjoyable talk. Uh, I was wondering if you have any final messages for our listeners or anything that maybe we didn't touch on that you'd like to mention, something that you're excited about for your next year here? Well, I I never mentioned the NASA website, which I think I should mention. It's www.nasaa, there's that extra a.org, www.nasaa.org. There's lots of information about everything I've been talking about on that website. There's also the ability to sign up so you can get updates. So, you know, you can keep, if you're interested in this space, you can keep track of what's going on. Reach out to any of us. There's information about how you can get in touch with us if you have questions about anything that I've said. But I appreciate the opportunity. Want to remind people that we are the local cops on the beat, first responders for investor protection, so to speak. And, you know, we're here for investors and we're in every state. So people can find us and, um, you know, get the help or guidance that they need. Great. Melanie, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Today's episode with Melanie reminded me of many discussions I had at the SEC when the Jobs Act first passed Congress in 2012, directing the SEC to write new rules that permitted the general solicitation of private offerings. That is, after 75 years of a prohibition, private funds, such as hedge funds, and private companies, those not registered with the SEC, could advertise for investors, accredited investors, to help raise capital. For 75 years, it was assumed that prohibiting such a practice would prevent market misconduct and fraud. Many investor advocate groups, including NASA, and I still recall the conversations, wanted stricter rules than what was ultimately adopted by the SEC. And on a previous episode with Commissioner Lee, she reminded listeners that some proposed measures that would have collected better information about private offerings that could have helped the SEC understand the potential consequences of loosening restrictions were never adopted. But as it turns out, general solicitation was somewhat of a dud. After almost a decade, it is seldom used, accounts for less than 10% of private capital raised, and even then, it's not clear whether funds and private companies are soliciting investors or claiming the exemption out of abundance of caution in case they inadvertently touch a non-qualifying investor through its normal outreach. The mass advertising and solicitation spree? It never happened, like many feared it would. So why is that? One hypothesis is that if you have to advertise a private offering, that's a signal that the offering may not be a good one, because if it were a good offering, you wouldn't have to advertise for it. Whether that is the reason? I was among those surprised that it wasn't used more, and it's not the only time a market effect of a rule surprised me. It just proves how hard it is for regulators to understand the potential impact of a policy. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Melanie, and if you did, don't be shy about telling others about it, and consider rating it wherever you get a podcast. Our series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. 
Today's executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody's College of Communication. 